We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10% off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com gold well i am back in connecticut in my basement once again welcome to the 900th episode of the peter Schiff show podcast 100 more episodes to go to get to a thousand And, you know, I want to report that I was able to return to the United States from the UK without any uh, episodes at the border. And I think I mentioned this on a podcast a while ago, but for a couple of years, I had a very difficult time coming back to the United States. It all started shortly after the 60 Minutes uh, defamatory broadcast that accused me of using my bank to help criminals launder money and evade taxes. After that, I noticed that I had a hard time coming back to the States. Whenever I came back and I was going through customs, they would see my passport and immediately would pull me aside. I'd have to go to a special room where I'd have to wait, and then I'd get interrogated by somebody, ask me a bunch of questions, look through all of my luggage, and then I would eventually be able to you know, come back in. And also, I don't know, about a year ago, or maybe not quite a year, I forget, but I lost my global entry. I had been a member of global entry for a long time. If you don't know what that is, it's something that you get, you apply with the government, you got to go down uh, and they run a background check on you and then they, they give you uh, a global entry. You also end up getting TSA pre-check for free when you're a member of uh, global entry and you get this known passenger number uh, with that. But it just means too that I could get back into the US uh, quicker because you go to a shorter customs line, it's more automated. Well, anyway, Shortly after I renewed my global entry, you know, for like another four or five years, I I paid the fee and I renewed it. And in less than a year after I renewed it, I lost it. I got uh, told that I no longer had global entry. In fact, the only reason I found this out is because my pre-check was no longer working. And so I lost that because I lost my global entry, but I never got an explanation. I, I tried to get it. I even used Freedom of Information Act but I could never get anybody at the government to tell me why I lost my global entry. But I think it all had to do with the investigation of me 
you know, because of the bank for money laundering and tax evasion, I must have been put on this list of suspicious people. And so my passport was flagged and anytime I came back into the country, they just assumed that maybe I was out there laundering money. And so they wanted to, uh, you know, really check me out. Well, the first time that I didn't have a problem coming back to the United States was a few months ago. I came back to Puerto Rico from St. Bart and, you know, I was expecting to get interrogated and they let me through. And I wasn't sure, oh, maybe it was just, you know, a, a one-off event. And so I was kind of nervous coming back uh, into this country. You know, not that they would find anything. I mean, I, I don't smuggle anything. I mean, so it's just a, a, a hassle that I have to take longer, to, you know, to get out of the airport. You know, after a long flight coming back from the UK, you don't like to spend a couple hours, you know, uh, you know, waiting for the, uh, uh, the customs officers to clear you. Um, but I sailed right through just a couple of standard questions. No big deal. Got right back in. And, and so I think it's over. I think what happened was while this investigation was ongoing, I was on this list. But the fact that I'm no longer on the list, maybe that tells me that the investigation is over. And I've, I've assumed it was over because they ended the investigation on the bank a long time ago. But it pissed me off in that uh, press conference that the Puerto Rican regulators called to announce the fact that they were putting my bank into receivership instead of allowing it to be sold uh, to Kenta, which is the company that had bought it or was buying it, waiting for uh, a government approval. By the way, it's almost been a year now. It'll be a year on June 30th that my bank had been in receivership and not a single customer has gotten any money back. I mean, all the money is there. I mean, there's not as much there now as there was a year ago because they've been spending it, right? There, you know, but there's still enough there to make everybody whole as far as I know. Uh, but nobody has gotten a nickel yet uh, because of this government process. But during that, um, that, 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 that press conference, the IRS guy was there, the, the top IRS guy in the criminal division. And he disclosed the basically failed investigation of my bank because no charges were filed because no evidence of any wrongdoing was discovered. But he made it sound as if we were doing something wrong. We just, you know, got away with it, right? Um, but somebody asked him, well, what about Peter Schiff? Is Peter Schiff under investigation? And the guy said, well, you know, we're not allowed to comment on who may or may not be under investigation after he just finished talking about how my bank was under investigation for two years. So if you're not allowed to comment about on investigations, then why the hell did he comment on the investigation about my bank? Especially since he knows the investigation exonerated my bank, yet he didn't want to mention that fact. Uh, so he just wanted to pretend that we did the bank did something wrong. It's just that, you know, nobody got charged with anything because I guess they couldn't quite find enough evidence dependent on anybody, but they just assumed that this bad stuff was going on. But with respect to the question about me, he just said, well, I can't comment on whether or not Peter Schiff is under investigation. Now, why not? I mean, he just commented on the bank. Now, I don't think he should have commented on the bank. I think that was wrong. But once, you know, he had the precedent of doing that, he could have said, well, no, we're not investigating Peter Schiff or we did, but we closed it. No, no, no. He didn't comment on it because I think he wanted to leave the false impression out there that there was some open investigation about me. And so that's why I haven't been charged yet because they haven't finished the investigation. 
They wanted to leave that specter out there that yes, Peter Schiff may be guilty of these crimes. We just haven't finished the investigation yet. And, and so it's an open matter. And you know they never want to come out and say there's no more investigation. But the fact that I can now return to the country to me is some indication that maybe they did officially close this investigation to the extent that you know I'm no longer on the suspect list of money launderers or tax evaders. And so I can you know come back in the United States without without a hassle. So I mean, that was comforting because I've, I've been traveling under this stigma. Uh, and I finally ended up getting my, uh, my TSA uh, pre-check back, but I had to get that directly. And I, I got approved for that. So I, I, I lost the, 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 uh, the pre-check, I mean, the global entry. And maybe I would get it back. I don't even know if I, if I applied again, maybe, maybe they'd give it to me. But they never told me why they, they took it away in the first place. Anyway, let me get on with the, the podcast. First thing I want to discuss is the jobs numbers, the weekly unemployment numbers that came out yesterday on Thursday, because this was a disappointment to the markets in that there was a big spike in weekly jobless claims. claims. The, the prior week, they were at 223,000 claims. And it jumped up to 261. That, that's a big jump in a single month. I mean, way above expectations, but a very large jump. And in fact, the number of people filing first-time unemployment claims is now the highest since October of 2021. So in the prior week, the markets were celebrating or heralding this great jobs report when all these jobs were being created. And now we get a very bad uh, weekly unemployment number, uh, you know, a week later. And again, I have been very suspicious and I've been voicing my suspicion on this podcast of the jobs numbers. You know, we've had, what was it? 12 out of the last 13 jobs reports have beat estimates and these labor numbers or these job numbers, this is what everybody is hanging their hat on to claim that we have a good economy because we have this supposedly strong labor market. Well, the employment numbers have been the only good numbers and they're only good superficially, but they're the only ones that are. All the other numbers are bad on the surface and they're even worse when you dig deeper. So the unemployment numbers are the outlier, but they are inconsistent because remember, even though we keep getting these official job reports that are stronger than expected, the household survey, which is released at the same time as the official numbers and doesn't really get much media attention unless the official number is bad and the household numbers are good. See, when that happens, the media finally talks about the household numbers. But when the household numbers are bad and the official numbers are good, well, the household numbers don't even exist, right? Nobody wants to talk about it, especially when you know, you got Joe Biden in the White House and the media wants to pretend we've got this great economy. So they want to ignore economic data that would cast doubt on that narrative. And they want to just focus in on the, on the data that seems to support, uh, you know, this robust Biden economy. But the fact that you've got this big contradiction between the household numbers and the establishment numbers, that in and of itself casts doubt on the jobs numbers. But then when you see these unemployment numbers, that's also an inconsistency that casts doubt on these numbers. The layoffs that are announced every week 
cast doubt on these numbers. So there's a big cloud, I think, surrounding all these unemployment numbers. And so I think that you can take them with a grain of salt. And to me, if you're going to look at the unemployment numbers and say we have a good economy because we still have you know, these, this strong labor market, then you have to believe that all the other economic data, which is now weak and below estimates, that that is going to turn around, that the other data is going to strengthen to be in line with the jobs data. After all, if we have this strong job market, we have this strong economy, the rest of the numbers should, should turn around. I think that's unlikely. I think what's far more likely is that the jobs numbers weaken in line with everything else. In fact, I think it's more likely that we end up getting a lot of revisions in these job numbers that show that they were never this strong the entire time, that the numbers that we were getting were painting a unrealistically positive outlook on the economy or, or unwarranted strength in the economy based on these job numbers. Maybe it was because of the birth death model, uh, having you know overestimated how many companies were created on a monthly basis and ignoring the reality that a lot of companies were probably going out of business uh, during that time. Um, so my expectation, again, is that the jobs numbers come back down and we will be in a recession. I think the recession, uh, if it's not already here, and again, you can argue we've been in recession the entire time, but for these phony numbers, but I think before the 2024 election and probably well before, I think that we're going to have to acknowledge the fact that we are in a recession. But contrary to what investors expect, and that's why the stock market keeps going up. You know, we just finished another week, another up week. The NASDAQ today closed at a new 52-week high, not a record high, but this is a new high. We're in this big bull market now uh, in the U.S. stock market, having risen, you know, more than 20%, quite a bit more in the NASDAQ from the uh, 2022 lows. And what's really driving the increase is the idea that the Fed is done. It's either close to the end or finished with the rate hikes. The only um, index that was down on the day was the Russell 2000, but even the Russell 2000 had a good week despite giving up some of those gains today. But I think the market's expectation of the rate cuts is misguided. I think they're right. We're going to have a recession and the Fed is going to pivot and the Fed is going to start to cut, but it's not going to cut nearly as deep as the markets expect. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that at the other side of this uh, commercial break. So don't go anywhere. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Okay, I'm talking about why the markets are right and wrong at the same time with respect to uh, their anticipation of uh, the Fed's pivot and how that's going to impact the markets and the economy. So next week, we're going to get the uh, FOMC meeting and they are going to announce uh, the next move on interest rates. And I think there's a pretty good chance that the Fed is not going to hike rates at all during the June meeting. And I think when they do that, they are going to do it in a way that it doesn't indicate that they're done, that they're kind of taking a break and that the rate hikes may in fact resume at the following meeting. Because I I think they want to kind of take a little bit of the, the sting out of the fact that they you know, they don't want to admit that, that, that they're done. They want to soften that. So they don't want to be as dovish as they could because the markets still expect a hike. So I think if they don't hike, although there's still, you know, a pretty decent probability that they don't, it wouldn't be a complete shock if they didn't hike rates because I think a lot of people, it may be in the minority, but it's a significant minority, expect that the Fed won't move in June. And and so I think they're going to try to act as if they they just want to be a little more pensive. They want to be data dependent before the next hike, right? You know, they've hiked a lot and we don't necessarily need to hike at every meeting anymore, but I think they still want to maintain the bias towards, towards hiking. But I think that if they blink next week and don't hike, I don't think they're going to hike again. They may pretend that they're going to hike again, but I don't think that's their plan. In fact, I think if they don't hike next week, the next move is going to be a cut. Don't know exactly when, but I think it'll be before the election, but there will be a cut. I think this is going to be like that mid-course correction from, I think it was 2019, when the Fed stopped hiking rates back then. And when they did it, they said, well, this is a mid-course correction. They tried to create the impression that they're going to keep hiking. They just needed a small correction from the previous hike before they resumed the hiking cycle, right? They didn't say we're done hiking and now we're cutting. They pretended that the cut meant nothing, that it was just a little mid-course correction, but we're still on course. We're still on the same course of raising rates. We're just correcting that course a little bit with this with this cut. Well, at the time, I was on my podcast saying, BS, that's it. The Fed's not hiking anymore. It is fact, it has changed course. It didn't correct the course. It did a 180, and it's going back the other direction, and we're going to get more cuts. And of course, we did. We ended up at zero uh, following COVID. So I think when the Fed tries to indicate this pause, this, whatever it's going to be, as for why they didn't move in June, they're going to leave it open that they might go in July with another 25 basis points, or they might go in August. You know, it's, it's kind of data dependent. But again, I think this is the end of it if they, if they pause. 
what's also going to happen, and one of the reasons that they're pausing, is that the economy is weakening. Forgetting about the jobs data, the economy is weakening. The Fed knows that. And, and so the Fed doesn't want to continue to kick the economy while it's down, uh, particularly the banking sector. The Fed doesn't want to keep raising rates. You know, I, I called up Bank of America today. I had a little money over there in this account. Uh, and I deposited a check there. And I had the savings account there. And since I put this check in there, I was curious, you know, what's my interest? I hadn't really been paying attention to this account. And I said, well, the interest rate is zero. And I said, well, do you have another account where I can get any interest at all? Is there any savings account that pays any interest above zero? And the agent told me, no, that's it. There's no way to get more than zero. They said they do have an interest checking account that I could get. Uh, no, excuse me. It was my checking account that was zero. Zero. And I said, are there any checking accounts that pay more than zero? They said, no. They said, if you open up a savings account, though, without checks, then you can get interest. I said, okay, how much? Five basis points. <laughs> five, not even 50, five, like one twentieth of 1%. That's it. And how is a bank going to survive when it can't pay more than five basis points when the Fed funds rate is 525 basis points? And I talked to this guy at the bank. He said, well, a lot of people have been pulling their money out and moving it over to Merrill Lynch and putting it in a money market account where they can earn uh, about 5%, which of course makes sense. The banks can no longer attract deposits. How do you have banks where you can't have depositors? Because they can't afford to pay the depositors any interest because they're broke, because the banks have already loaned out all their money for 30 years to the US government or to American citizens. I've got a mortgage with that same bank. Bank of America has my Connecticut mortgage and I'm paying three and a quarter. And there's still more than 25 years left on that mortgage. They are eating it on that mortgage. They're losing a ton of money paying, you know, only collecting three and a quarter, right? They, they, I, and I warned about this as I had the mortgage, you know, and as I was talking to people about this and everybody was so excited about how great it was that everybody could refinance their mortgages. I just kept saying, it's great for the borrower. It's going to be a disaster for the lender. And of course it is. And the Fed doesn't want to put any more pressure on the banks by raising rates even more. It doesn't want to put any more pressure on the commercial real estate market, which has a massive amount of pressure on it already. So the Fed is looking for a reason not to hike. And so, you know, they probably come up with one. But the minute they do this, I think you're going to finally see a drop in the dollar, like the next leg down in the dollar, which is going to spark a move up in commodity prices. The stock market already rose on anticipation of uh, a Fed pivot, but we haven't seen any of that in the gold market, you know, gold prices, you know, they did spike about 20 bucks on that weaker than expected jobs report, or not jobs report, uh, unemployment number that came out on Thursday. But we're still just treading sideways. We're holding below 20,000, 1,960. But we haven't seen an explosive move up. We haven't seen a big breakout in other commodities, oil, nothing. It's just been the stock market uh, that has basically been the big mover, uh, moving on anticipation of 
the, the, the change in monetary policy, moving from a tightening cycle to an easing cycle. But I think if the Fed doesn't hike next week, that could be the catalyst to get the dollar to resume the bear market or enter a bear market, get gold to break out uh, and into new highs well above 2000 and continue to move. And I think that is going to start to put a lot of upward pressure on consumer prices. I, I've been saying I think we're near the trough in year-over-year CPI, and I think we are. The last couple of CPI numbers have been worse than expected, meaning uh, higher increases month-over-month, year-over-year. So we've kind of bottomed out at around this 5%, I mean, miles away, not even close to 2%. And then we're going to start heading up. And here's going to be the problem for the Fed. As inflation starts to pick up after they've already paused and as the economy is weakening and especially if they've started to cut, right? So because they may start to cut rates before the inflation numbers really start to get bad. But if they're not really bad before that first rate cut, they're going to get bad after it. And I think all this is probably going to happen, you know, before the 2024 election. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that uh, after I finish talking about this because there's a lot of political news that, that, that has just come out and I want to get to that. But I think that rather than the Fed fighting inflation, it's going to be the government that tries to fight inflation, but not in any way that's going to work. I think they're going to impose price controls and that's already happening right now uh, in France. I've been reading these news stories. In fact, I tweeted about one today that the French government has basically forced um, French supermarkets, right? So right now it's just in the food sector and and maybe it's going to spread to other segments of the economy. But the French government is applying financial pressure to the supermarkets, grocery stores, not only to stop raising prices, but to actually cut them. And I think prices are going to be cut maybe 2 to 8%, something like that, on all these different food items. Now, this is not the reason that there's an inflation problem in France. It's not because the grocery stores are gouging uh, the people. It's because the European Central Bank gouged the people with money printing. That is why prices are going up. Christine Lagarde, Mario Draghi, particularly Draghi, because he was there for a lot longer, he kept saying that the problem in the Eurozone was that there wasn't enough inflation. His main goal as the head of the ECB was higher inflation. Well, he succeeded. The goal of the European Central Bank was for the cost of living to go up more because it wasn't rising enough, and that would include food. So the fact that food is more expensive is the consequence of a deliberate effort by the European Central Bank to increase prices, right? Well, they succeeded. And also, all of the budget deficits that are being run by the European governments, including the French government, which the ECB has been monetizing. So these supermarkets, they're not causing the inflation. They are responding to it. They are victims of it. In fact, many of these companies, and I own stock in quite a few of them, but a lot of these companies, even though they raise their prices, 
They didn't raise them enough. Their costs went up more. And you know, the French politicians are now saying, hey, look, your input costs have been going down. Why aren't you cutting prices? Well, the reason is because they didn't raise them enough when the import costs were rising. In fact, initially, as costs started to go up, a lot of these companies were reluctant to raise prices. They, you know, they thought it might be transitory. They didn't want to risk alienating their customers. And so they were behind the curve. And so now that some of the raw material costs are going down, you can't say, oh, we're going to immediately start cutting prices if we haven't even raised them enough based on how much their input cost already rose. But no, right? The politicians weren't, you know, mad at the supermarkets for not raising their prices when their costs went up. But now they're pissed off that they're not cutting them when their costs went down, even though they probably still haven't raised their prices enough to keep up with their costs. Their margins have suffered. I know that as a shareholder. But what I've been expecting is for the companies to eventually catch up by pushing on you know, more price hikes. But now that's difficult, at least in France, because the French government is not allowing this to happen. And so this is going to have uh, broad ramifications in, in France. The one thing it's not going to do is produce lower food prices. Because what's going to have to happen is these grocery stores, supermarkets are going to have to figure out other ways to make up for this loss. And, and so the customer is going to feel it one way or another. They're going to find ways to reduce the quality or they're going to come out with you know, new uh, cuts of meat that they can put a price on that won't be a price hike because it's a different product. They're going to repackage stuff. I mean, things are going to happen. Or you know, there's just going to be less supply and maybe you're going to go to the supermarket and there's just not going to be enough, uh, enough stuff there. Maybe some of the items that the supermarkets are not allowed to price correctly, well, they'll just stop stocking those items. So they're not going to raise prices because they're not going to have the products anymore. And so that will have accomplished the goal of the French government. Prices won't be going up, but it won't matter because there'll be nothing to buy because the stuff won't be there on the shelves. So now the supermarket can say, yes, we didn't raise our prices because we no longer stock those items. Uh, because we can't sell them profitably without the politicians, you know, sanctioning us. But the reason I'm bringing up what's going on in France is because I think that's coming to a theater near us pretty soon. Because that's basically all they're going to have. When the price increases start to accelerate after the Fed has cut rates, right? What are they going to do? The Fed can't reverse and start hiking rates if it's just started cutting them. And so if the Fed is powerless to do anything about the, you know, the resurgent inflation, that's going to leave it to Congress, to the president, who might do it by executive order. And what could he do by executive order? Well, I guess price controls. That's what I think Biden is going to do, especially if he's looking bad in the polls, if inflation is a big issue, how is he going to do anything about it? Well, he's going to try to order companies to stop hiking prices or reduce prices, just like France is doing it right now. And that may be the only way uh, to help his chances of being reelected, especially if he thinks that the negative consequences of those price controls won't manifest until after the election. So in other words, he can get the benefit 
to uh, you know of prices maybe coming down a bit and voters thinking he's just done something but not have to be held accountable because the damage doesn't occur until after the votes are cast. So he thinks, okay, maybe I get reelected and then everything hits the fan, but who cares? Because, you know, I only have one more term, right? You can't get elected a third time, assuming Biden can get reelected a second time and actually live long enough to serve out uh, his, his second term. But, you know, he's not going to care. So I think this is likely to happen. I've been warning about price controls for a long time. You know, we've repeated all the other mistakes of the 1970s. Why leave out price controls? You know, the government has a perfect record of repeating every mistake it's ever made. It never learns from any mistakes. Uh, So if government is one thing, at least it's consistent. And so uh, with that consistency in mind, price controls, even though they were abysmal failure uh, when uh, Richard Nixon tried them in the 1970s, there's a good chance that uh, Joe Biden is going to try them in 20, you know, 23, 2024. Anyway, that's a good segue to move into politics. I want to talk a little bit about that because yesterday we got the news that former President Donald Trump has been indicted yet again, this time a federal indictment. It's not, you know, the city of New York. It is the U.S. government, the Biden Justice Department, the guy that beat Donald Trump in the last presidential election, although Donald Trump would beg to differ, but the guy that beat Trump and the guy who Trump is probably going to run against uh, in the next election, that Justice Department has now charged Donald Trump, had him indicted with felonies. And I think the jail term, assuming Donald Trump is convicted uh, of committing these felonies, he could go to jail for 10 years right, from the White House to the Big House. But, you know, if anybody should go to the White House or to the Big House from the White House, it's Joe Biden. I mean, the Big House is the perfect place for the big guy. I mean, he belongs there far more than Donald Trump. Look, all politicians are crooked. You know, Donald Trump may be even less crooked than most because he didn't spend a lifetime in politics. But Trump is being indicted for the way he handled the documents that he took with him, you know, when he left the White House. I mean, come on. Look who's in the White House. What, what about all the problems that Joe Biden had with documents? You know, what about Hillary Clinton? You know, what about all the problems that she had with her documents, right? Hillary Clinton didn't get charged. Even Donald Trump, when Donald Trump was president, yes, when he ran for president, lock her up, lock her up, right? That got a lot of applause. It maybe won him some votes. But when Donald Trump was president of the United States and he controlled the Justice Department, he left Hillary Clinton alone. Didn't do anything. I'm sure that they had a lot more dirt on Hillary than the Biden Justice Department has on Trump. Yet Biden, no, he can't leave Donald Trump alone. They are trumping up these charges and filing them against Donald Trump. But I think there's a lot more here than meets the surface. I think that the political... uh, Uh, you know, gamesmanship here is not what it would appear if you just look at it superficially. A lot of people think, aha, you see, they're trying to get Donald Trump. They're trying to hurt uh, him uh, in uh, his presidential campaign. They're not trying to hurt him in the primary. They're actually trying to help him. They realize that by charging him 
They are helping him. They're helping Donald Trump raise money. They are helping Donald Trump garner sympathy, not only from the electorate, but from his challengers. Everybody who is running against Donald Trump has to defend the president against this political witch hunt. They can't say, yes, you're, they're doing the right thing because Donald Trump is very popular in the Republican Party and you can't attack him like that and expect to win the nomination of the party. Everybody has to handle it with kit gloves. And so now Donald Trump's competitors are forced to say nice things about him. They are forced to come to his defense and unite against the corruption in the Democratic Party. This is increasing the chance that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. And that is exactly what the Biden administration wants. They want to run against Trump because they're convinced they can beat him. And they're convinced that these charges that will help him in the primary will hurt him in the general election. So they're strengthening him in the primary so they can beat him in the general election. It's like they're, they're, they're fattening him up. You know, he's like a, a, a prize pig and they want to fatten him up so that when they serve him for, for, for a meal, right, you know, they're going to have a bigger meal because, you know, they, they've got a fatter pig, right? That, that's, I think, what their plan is. Now, it may work, but then again, it may backfire because they underestimated Trump the first time. They wanted to run against Trump. Hillary wanted to run against Trump. He was the dream candidate, and the dream turned into a nightmare when Trump won. And the reason Trump won, and one of the reasons I predicted that he could win when everybody else said he didn't have a chance, was because I knew the economy was bad, and at least Trump represented the possibility of change. He promised to make America great again, and so people were willing to give him a shot. Now, he had four years, and he didn't make America great again. That's why I don't think a second Trump candidacy is as good as the first one, because now he's not an unknown quantity. He's known somewhat. But I think the economy is going to be so bad in the 2024 election. And Biden is going to be even less popular than he is right now. Uh, Trump could, could win a second term. And, you know, even if he didn't make America great again, he can pretend he did. And relative to how bad things are going to be in 2024 election, people might remember that we had a great economy. And if they don't remember, Trump will remind them. Uh, and, and so, you know, people still might long for the good old days because stagflation is something that we haven't lived with before. And they're going to be able to pin that right on Biden. But, you know, this whole idea, though, that you could weaponize uh, the uh, Justice Department and go after your political adversaries, this is very dangerous stuff, right? Even if, you know, my, my theory on why they're doing it is correct, it's wrong. You know, you can't use the Justice Department in this way. It is there to see that justice is served. It's not there to help reelect the person who happens to be president, but the whole process is corrupted. Again, that's what happened with me. Why was it that the U.S. government decided to investigate me and my bank? Was it because my bank did anything wrong? No, it was because of the stuff that I said. It was because of my political opinions, my anti-big government, anti-regulation, anti-tax 
That's why they wanted to go after me. They wanted to take me down. The problem was I abided by every one of their stupid rules and regulations that I opposed. In fact, one of the reasons I oppose them is because I abide by them. And by abiding by them, I know exactly how much they cost. I also know that they don't do any good. They actually do harm. They don't do any good. So because of all my experience complying with government rules and regulations that don't do anything to protect the customers, all they do is increase the costs that the customers have to pay and diminish competition. Because I understand the consequences, having lived with them, I oppose them. And I, and I make that opposition known. But you know, I'm not dumb enough. I mean, apparently they think I'm dumb enough to criticize the regulations and then not abide by them. No, no, no. The only way I would criticize the, 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 um, the regulations would be if I was abiding by them because I know I would make myself a target. In fact, if I wanted to violate government rules and regulations to save money or for whatever reason, if I really wasn't dotting every I and crossing every T, if I really was doing what they suspected me of doing, the last thing I would do would be to call attention to myself. I would be as quiet as a mouse. I would be out there like Bankman Freed talking about how great the government is, right? I'd be virtue signaling to everybody so nobody would notice how much money I was stealing or how many rules and regulations I was breaking. But because I was so critical of the rules and regulations, I had to make sure that I abided by them. But anyway, I just went off track. I want to get back to what I was talking politics. The other twist that uh, might be coming is that Biden may in fact not be the nominee. And I've heard a lot of talk and it makes sense. People want to compare the current situation of Joe Biden to the situation that Lyndon Baines Johnson was in for the 1964 election. So Johnson became president when JFK was assassinated. And he won election in 1960, uh, or, or excuse me, in, in, in excuse me, in, uh, no, no I, got, I got my dates wrong. So he became president and he won the 64 election. It was the 68 election that, that I'm gonna talk about. So he was elected in 1964. He became president because Kennedy was shot. He, he beat Barry Goldwater, who in my opinion, was probably the best candidate the Republicans ever fielded. I mean, Ronald Reagan in a way might've been better than Barry Goldwater, but I don't know that, I think Barry Goldwater would have been a better president than Reagan, right? Uh, but Reagan was a great candidate and, and, and you know, Reagan was a big Barry Goldwater fan. And, and so was my father. I mean, my father campaigned hard uh, for, for Goldwater. Uh, you know, most people back in the day too, I mean, you know, you know, we're Rockefeller Republicans. The Republican Party was very far to the left. Uh, and, uh, and so the fact that, that Goldwater even got the nomination was a major move uh, for the Republican Party. And that laid the foundation for Ronald Reagan to win in 1980. Uh, but the Democrats loved that. I mean, they were so far left back in, in uh, 1964, but you know, they were able to win uh, you know, based on the fact that the Republicans nominated Goldwater, but he would have been a great president. Uh, Barry Goldwater, and the country might look a lot different today had we elected Barry Goldwater uh, instead of Lyndon Johnson, because you know then that started the war on poverty, the Great Society. You know, a lot of stuff happened in Vietnam. A lot of bad stuff happened 
because of Lyndon Johnson. He's probably one of the worst presidents we've ever had. Maybe he's even the worst. I mean, it's a tough call. We've had a lot of bad ones, but he was pretty damn bad. Uh, but anyway, so he won in 1964. And so in 1968, he was unpopular. I mean, there was a, there was a war going on in Vietnam uh, that was very unpopular. Uh, and there are other problems in the economy. And so he was low in the polls, but he was an incumbent and he was going to run for his you know, second re-election. Um, and, and he had Hubert Humphrey was his vice president. You know, for whatever reason, I don't know, but after uh, Kennedy died and um, uh, LBJ became president, he didn't select a vice president, right? So uh, he served out the rest of that term without a vice president. But then at the convention uh, for the 68 campaign, he, um, he, he picked, you know, Hubert Humphrey, you know, who, uh, for uh, who was actually a sitting, I think he was a Senator from, uh, Minnesota at the time. So he left the Senate, you know, to, uh, to become a vice president, uh, under, under, uh, Johnson in, in, in 64, so 64. So anyway, so 1968, um, Johnson's going to run for reelection, but then he gets challenged. You know, Eugene McCarthy, kind of a relatively unknown guy in the Democratic Party, challenged um, Lyndon Johnson. Only guy willing to do it because nobody wanted to go up against the standard bearer, the sitting president of the United States, right? Nobody wanted to, uh, you know, primary against that guy. But McCarthy did. And the New Hampshire primary came up, which is the first one. And McCarthy almost won. He got 42% of the vote. LBJ got 48%. And so that was a huge wake-up call. And the fact that this unknown guy did so well against such an unpopular uh, sitting president, that caused um, Robert Kennedy, uh, JFK's brother, the former secretary, uh, you know, uh, um, what was he? He was the uh, attorney general, former attorney general of the United States. He threw his hat in the ring and declared his candidacy for the presidency. Shortly thereafter, you know, LBJ ended up dropping out. He gave a famous speech. He went on television, said that he would not seek, nor would he accept uh, the nomination of his party to serve another term. So he basically bowed out uh, because of the primary challenge. Now, of course, you know, Robert Kennedy would have won. He won the California primary, and then a couple days later, he got killed. And so that allowed Hubert Humphrey, who was the vice president, to get the nomination and lose to Richard Nixon. And I think people are looking at what happened and thinking the same thing might happen again with uh, Biden, because he is a very weak president. There is an unpopular war. Maybe it's not a war where U.S. troops are involved, but there is a war uh, in um uh, uh, the Ukraine and Russia. So that's there. But the economy is lousy. We've got stagflation. Uh, and, you know, the president, you know, is basically, you know, inept. I mean, everybody can see the problems that he has. Now, he is refusing to debate. He has one uh, challenger right now, which ironically is Robert Kennedy's kid, right? JFK Jr., the nephew of Robert F. Kennedy, is running against Joe Biden. Now, so far, Joe Biden is kind of ignoring this guy, like, like he's no big deal, right? And he doesn't want to debate him. He's saying, I'm not going to have any debates. 
I'm the sitting president. Why should I have any debates? You know, well, you know, maybe it's not a great example uh, for success, but Jimmy Carter in 1980, when he was the sitting president, he was challenged in the primary by another Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy, right? Ted Kennedy challenged uh, um, Jimmy Carter, just like Robert Kennedy, right? Challenged LBJ. And, you know, he wasn't shot. The, 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 the primary, you know, concluded. Uh, and Jimmy Carter won, you know, but he did debate him. There were several debates between Carter and Kennedy. Carter didn't duck the debates, at least give the guy credit for that. He didn't hide out like Joe Biden is doing. He faced the challenge, you know, and Ted Kennedy was a senator. He was a popular guy in the Democratic Party, had a great name, right? Kennedy, uh, the closest thing to royalty we have in America are the Kennedys. And so um, uh, Jimmy Carter, at least primary. Uh, but Joe Biden doesn't want anything to do with Robert Kennedy Jr. And I don't blame him because, you know, I've listened to some of the things Robert Kennedy Jr. says. And I think he would, he would you know, beat the crap out of, out of Biden in a primary so, debate, so it's not going to happen. Now, you know, to me, Robert Kennedy Jr., there, there are things that he says that I agree with, right? So, but there's a lot of stuff that he says that I don't agree with. I mean, he is a big government guy. You know, he's a big social welfare guy. He's not a big defender of free market capitalism, but he does criticize uh, a lot of the stuff that the government is doing wrong uh, that I also believe. I mean, he's kind of like a libertarian in a sense when it comes to certain issues, surveillance or, you know, war on drugs. Um, there are certain things that he wants to get, you know, get rid of government for. Uh, talking about government corruption, government and business, uh, you know, how they're, they're cracking down on First Amendment. He was, you know, against all the, the mandatory vaccines. And, you know, so, I mean, he says a lot of things that would appeal a lot of people. But the Democrats are acting like this guy is a Republican, that this guy is like another Donald Trump. I mean, he really is closer to what the Democrats were 10, 20 years ago than the Democrats are today. I mean, you know, he's a lot of the issues that he's championing were Democratic issues. They're just not there anymore. I mean, the Democrats were supposedly, right? We don't want war, right? They, you know, but, but now they're the, the warfare party. I mean, he talks about the neocons in the Democratic Party, but he's making a lot of noise for uh, uh, Biden. And, and so I think that as uh, this primary season goes on and Robert Kennedy continues to you know, beat up on, on Biden. And, you know, he did a, a Twitter spaces with Elon Musk. Uh, so that helped introduce him to a lot of people. And a lot of people are going to be looking for alternatives to, um, to, to Biden. But right now, other mainstream candidates are kind of reluctant to get into the mix. But I think that at some point, if, uh, Kennedy starts polling high enough, or even if we get to a primary and, and, and he has a good showing or wins, that's going to open up the door for like a Gavin Newsom to come swooping in uh, and say, hey, I I'm in it. Because if it looks like uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is going to win, I mean, it's going to be like a Bernie Sanders, right? The Democratic Party didn't want Bernie Sanders to get the nomination. He probably would have gotten a nomination um, that, that Biden got. But when it looked like he was going to win, I think the Democratic establishment rallied around 
Biden as their last hope because they couldn't allow a guy like Sanders. And again, I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't a big Sanders fan. I mean, but you know, he seemed a little bit more honest about his socialism than the rest of them that were trying to cover it up. Uh, but he would have been a terrible president, but he wasn't like an establishment guy. He wasn't a party player. And so the Democratic Party didn't want him uh, to be president. And so when it looked like he would probably get the nomination, uh, they kind of fixed it so that Biden would get it because Biden was a guy that they can control. He was Mr. Establishment. I don't know if they knew how, how much he was on the take or how much the big guy made. In fact, there's these new rumors now about some $10 million bribe that was split between Hunter and the big guy. I don't know if that's the newest one. I mean, most of this stuff is probably true. Uh, you know, uh, in fact, I think Biden was asked about it at a conference and his at a press conference and his answer was, where's the money? Like he didn't deny it. He just said, where's the money? Because he probably knows they can't find it because it was funneled through so many different accounts. Right. But now now I'm I digressing a bit. But the point I'm trying to make is that they don't want Robert Kennedy Jr. to be the Democratic nominee. And they certainly don't want Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. to be the president of the United States. Right? The Democratic Party does not want that. Uh, and so if it looks like he could win, <laughs> then Gavin Newsom is going to come into the rescue because he is the, um, uh, the establishment guy uh, that they would like to see at the top of the ticket. And so that might happen just like it happened in, uh, in, in 1968. And again, you know, history doesn't repeat. It often rhymes, especially when you got the word Kennedy in there. Uh, the Kennedys just keep popping up at these at these moments in history. But the key is, who's going to be the Republican nominee? It still looks like it's going to be Donald Trump. Uh, I think the Democrats believe that it's easier to beat Trump um, uh, than any of the other candidates. Uh, you know, But to me, right, Trump is not the best candidate because he's not the most conservative or the most free market. A lot of people think he is. A lot of these Trump supporters, they think he's the extreme right. And, and um, he's not. DeSantis is more conservative, more to the right. In fact, Trump is running to the center. Trump is already criticizing DeSantis because he wants to cut government spending, right? So Trump is campaigning like a moderate to a left winger, right? But, but then, of course, he wants to claim he's a conservative, but he's getting enough votes because he has a strong core constituency. I mean, I think that um, DeSantis would probably be better president and probably a better candidate than Donald Trump, but would he be a game changer? Would he be a Barry Goldwater? I don't think so. Will he even be a Ronald Reagan? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, it's better than having Joe Biden in there, but it's not gonna be a game changer. Uh, and, and neither is Trump. Trump's already proven that he's not gonna be a game changer. The, the, the thing about Trump being elected or reelected rather than DeSantis is that it's going to piss off so many people. But, I, you know, the country would erupt. I mean, if Trump was sent back uh, in, 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 into the White House, I mean, as bad as things are right now, at least, you know, socially and all that, I mean, this would just galvanize uh, that and make it even worse. So it, it probably would be better for everybody uh, to see DeSantis. Uh, a, a win. But what, what, what this whole thing is exposing is this complete corruption, though, in the process and the corruption at the federal level. And it's very scary as to what's going to happen when we get this real crash, when we get this real economic collapse, because this is coming. And that's when government is at its worst, 
when the situation is at its worst because that's when they're able to usurp even more power. And if they're as corrupt as they are right now, right, when we're you know, relatively at peace and there's relative prosperity, not that you know, there is prosperity, but relative to the way things are gonna be, if they're this corrupt now, just imagine what's gonna happen when it really hits the fan. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. Uh, I will be back next week. Hopefully I'll be feeling better. I did catch something early on my trip to London and I'm feeling even worse now. So having a hard time talking if that hasn't come through in the podcast, but hopefully I'll be better next week and I'll be back with more podcasts and I'll be able to talk about the Fed's uh, rate hike or lack of rate rate hike and what is said on the podcast. In fact, I'm gonna be uh, on Fox Business with Liz Clayman the day of the decision. So I'll be talking about it then. Oh, and I one more thing I wanted to remind everybody about, and that is the, the auction for the ordinals, the painting and the ordinals. I forgot to mention that because uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, didn't, you know, might've been skeptical about it because of the, uh, the Twitter hacking. So we ended up delaying the auction. It was gonna be uh, tonight and we delayed it by a week. So it's next Friday in New York City. Go to onemarketprice.com slash golden to get the details on the event. Uh, if you're in the New York area, love to have you come down to the gallery, spend some time there. Um, if you want to bid on either the original oil painting or uh, any of the 50 numbered and signed prints and the accompanying ordinals, you can do that on the website. You just got to go there and you got to register to bid. The other announcement I wanted to make is I noticed that a lot of people didn't listen to or watch my last podcast. I mean, it looks like it's got about 50,000 views on YouTube. We've been getting 90, 100,000 or more per YouTube. And I think the reason is that we weren't able to announce this podcast on Twitter because I had no access to my Twitter account, which by the way, since my last podcast, I am back on Twitter. So you don't have to follow me on Facebook or Instagram. I mean, you can if you want, but I'm back on Twitter. I'm tweeting. I was able to get my account back with the help of some engineers. I, I actually ended up having to use some, some connections to go directly to some top engineers. That's how hard it was for me to get my, my account back. Right? It, sh- it should be easier, but at least I, I got it back. But because I didn't have the account, I wasn't able to tweet out the podcast. So maybe some people who normally would have seen that podcast on YouTube didn't because they didn't get the message on Twitter. So if you're watching this one and you didn't watch the last one, go back and watch it because I think it was a very good podcast. I really made some very uh, significant points. I think the people who watched it really enjoyed it. We got a lot of likes on that podcast relative to the number of views. So if you're one of the people that missed it because it wasn't on Twitter, well, go back and watch it when you're finished with this one. That's it. Bye for now, everybody.